You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Good morning, church. It's good to sing praises to the Lord, isn't it? I'm going to open with our text this morning. We're in Colossians 2. And uh, I'm going to begin, Pastor read a couple of the verses. I'm going to begin at verse 6, go down through verse 15 if you want to follow along with me. We'll read it uh, together here and then I'll pray. Colossians 2 and verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God who exists eternally in three persons, loving Father, great, obedient, mighty Son, the Lion of Judah, our King, our High Priest, our Savior, our Lord, Holy Spirit, Comforter, Helper. You're here in us, with us. God, we ask that you would bring your word to bear on us this morning. Pray that you would speak to us. You've spoken in your word. Lord, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Do whatever, Lord, do whatever you want to do in us, with us. Lord, if there's a stony heart here this morning, I pray that you would break through it. If there is a heart weighed down by sin, I pray that you would relieve that. If there is a heart here wanting to go deeper with you, I pray that you would encourage that and fan that flame. Lord, wherever we're at, wherever we've come in with this morning, I pray that you meet us. And that we leave changed because we've heard from you. Help us now, Lord, to hear from you together. 
with humility, with eagerness, with open ears and open hearts. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have been walking through this series, In Christ, and um, as we've kind of already said this morning, though, we've looked at, uh, beginning with the first two weeks, In Christ, you're dead. You're dead to the law. Galatians 2, you had to die to the law. You had to come to a place through your faith in Christ that you could say, along with Paul, that you've been crucified with Christ. And in that, you died to the law. You no longer lived to the law. You no longer relied on um, trying to meet some standard in order that you might be made righteous before the Lord because all of us know that that cannot happen. We fall short so easily. You've died to sin if you're in Christ. You know, sin no longer has dominion over you. We're commanded not to let sin reign over us. Sin uh, is not our king, is not our Lord. Jesus Christ is our king and Lord if we are in him. You've died to death in that you can stare death in the face and not fear it. You're not afraid of death. The Christian is not fearing death, but eagerly anticipating being with Christ. But it doesn't stop with death. Every text that we've walked through has uh, two sides to it. We talk about death, the death. We enter into the death of Christ through faith, but we come to life then. Many of the verses that we hit on in the last two weeks has this in it. Galatians two nineteen. for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. In Galatians 2.20, we've already talked about live is all over the place. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live in the flesh or in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.2 How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's a different life that we live now in Christ. We're living, Romans 6, 4, we're walking in newness of life. We've been raised with Christ, as we'll talk about this morning. Romans 6, 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. And so life is very much the goal of our participating in the death of Christ. We serve a risen Savior. Amen? He's alive. We're not gathering here to talk about something that happened a long time ago that it's just sort of a nice thing to think about. We're talking about a risen and reigning King and Savior who will come again. He's just as much alive as he was when he stood before the disciples when he came out of the tomb. Paul says in Philippians 1:21 for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know I we we know that verse and perhaps we talk about it in relation to uh ministering to a friend or a family member who has lost a loved one who is a Christian. We encourage ourselves with this as we face things and often the emphasis is on the to die is gain. But think about that. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Let's not run too quickly to the dying. Living is Christ, he says. That's pretty good. To live is Christ. We do have wonderful hope as Christians about the future. We have promises from the Lord that we will be with him, that he will come for us. But right now, in case you didn't know, you're alive. 
You're living. What are you doing with it? We're not just waiting. We are, but we're supposed to be doing something while we wait. We live. We're not just sitting in the waiting room until he gets us. We're living. What are we doing with our life? Nehemiah, uh, I won't ask you to turn there, but I'm just going to jump through the last few chapters of Nehemiah because it's a wonderful picture for us to help us get in the frame of mind of where Paul's at this morning. And Nehemiah, if you know the story of Nehemiah, he is permitted to go back uh, as he is a cupbearer to the king there in Persia. He's permitted to go back and begin building the wall around Jerusalem. It's torn down, and he goes and does that, meets all kinds of adversity, so on and so forth. The Lord does wonderful things. And uh, as the wall is built and they're preparing to dedicate the wall, you get all the way to chapter 8 of Nehemiah. There's this revival, it seems, that begins to break out as Ezra reads from the law to the people. The people stand all day long. You think we talk for a long time. People stand all day long and listen to Ezra read the first five books of the Bible. Maybe we'll do that sometime. (laughs) And we'll finish with Galatians 2. We've died to the law. No. But this revival breaks out. Ezra reads from the law and the people hear it. And in chapter 9, the people begin confessing their sins because that's what happens when you come face to face with the holiness and the righteousness of God. If the Spirit is involved, you have to confess your sins. I don't, I'm not that. He's so much different than me. I, I don't measure up. The people confess their sins. It's wonderful. Chapter 10, people now enter into a covenant as a result of this revival. And the three things that they make a covenant with the Lord in are these, there are three issues really that came up as they were now understanding what it was. The city is being rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. How do they get back to normal, normalcy after exile? And in this covenant they make, they say three things. We will be faithful to the Lord with our romantic relationships. They're not going to marry foreigners who are not God's people. Those, not necessarily because of their nationality, but because of who these people were worshiping. So they say, we're not going to marry folks of other religions. Secondly, they say we're going to be faithful with all of our business dealings. We're not going to do business on the Sabbath any longer. And lastly, they say, we're going to be faithful to God in supporting his work. They begin to give tithes and offerings to the work of the Lord. So, wonderful. Ezra reads the law. People confess their sins. People enter into a covenant with the Lord. And a few chapters go by. Chapter 13, the end of the book. Nehemiah leaves for a time. And uh, when he returns, he finds the people had specifically broken every single aspect of the covenant that they had made. And, and if you read the text of Nehemiah 13, it's careful. It doesn't tell you specifically they broke the covenant, but it walks through how they were doing every single thing counter to what they had promised to do in that covenant. There was, one wonders what kind of revival it really was. There was no root. Nothing had really taken hold. They did not walk according to the experience in which they had participated. Think about it. They, they were all cut to the heart. Our minds go to Acts chapter 2. They're cut to the heart. They're confessing their sins. They enter into a covenant with the Lord. They want to walk faithfully, obediently, and Nehemiah leaves and everything falls apart. 
if we have not had the proper experience of participating in and sharing in the death of Christ, the same thing will happen to us. We can have emotional overtures and all kinds of experiences and all kinds of promises and all kinds of big, wonderful uh, things that happen to us and promises made and excitement and emotion. We could feel guilt. We could make attempts to modify our behavior. But if there's no root, nothing will last. There will be no true root in Christ in that kind of behavior because we did not die to, with Christ to the law and to sin and to death. How could we live to God if we've not died with Christ? How could we live in Christ? How could we say in Christ we're alive if we were not in Christ dead? We have to be careful not to put the cart before the horse. That's what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah just screams, wouldn't it be great if there was some way for all of this to be effectual and work? Wouldn't it be great if there was someone who could actually come in and keep this covenant for us and enable us to be able to continue to walk in obedience and be forgiven before the Lord and be able to live in repentance and confession and have it stick? And then we come to Matthew. Oh, it's Jesus. That's who we've been waiting for. In Nehemiah, there's all kinds of things you can read from Nehemiah. But it just says, when is Jesus coming? Until so you get to the end of Nehemiah, and that's what you're waiting for. I can't wait till he gets here. And Paul here is very much focusing on the same things. He's calling the Colossian church back to something that happened to them. And he's calling them to live according to that. Paul's not there with the Colossians. That's why he's writing them a letter. And he's calling them in many ways the same thing as Nehemiah. (laughs) Look, don't just, he says in other letters, don't just behave while I'm there. If your faith is based on just because I'm around and you want to impress me or something, you don't have faith in Christ. Your faith is in Christ. It doesn't matter who's around. Who you are by yourself is who you are before the Lord. And so Paul's reminder to them is, hey, look back to what you have done and, and, and experienced in Christ. And that's, that's the word to us this morning. Look back. Our whole Christian lives is, is we're propelling forward, we're walking forward in obedience, we're, we're marching towards the day, yes, in hope when we will be with the Lord. But right now, as we live every day and as you wake up tomorrow and do the same thing, you're looking back to, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean now? We're always, as Christians in some ways, we're always living in the past, hoping for the future. Because without the past, without what Christ has done, we have no now. We have no hope. We have no future. And so we must be rooted in that. So Paul says, therefore, you know enough, I assume. When you see a therefore, you wonder why it's there for. Paul, in the first few verses of Colossians 2, I'll just read through it here and summarize it for us. He says, I want you to know, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See that? 
All the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. What is it? It's Christ. In whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul makes clear, it's all about Christ. Everything that you need, everything that we sung today, (laughs) fits so nicely with this. Everything that you need, everything that you desire, everything that will fulfill you, everything that is enough for you is in Christ. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. As you received. You can't separate Jesus and the Lord in this verse. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. If you just scan through uh, the letter and looked at every time that Paul talks about Christ Jesus or Jesus or Christ, he doesn't often match it and pair it with the Lord. But there's a reason why he puts it there. And we'll see why as we walk through it. But you can't separate. You can't receive Jesus and then receive him as Lord. That doesn't exist. He's Savior and Lord. It's all in one package. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Verse 10, we see that he is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 15, we see that he disarmed those rulers and authorities. Only a Lord can have that kind of power and ability. And as we walk through this, we'll develop this idea of receiving Jesus as Lord. Have you done that? Have you done that? See, one of the just plain basic things about Christianity is we can all talk about it and think about it and, well, that's interesting and let me learn more. But the question remains, have you received Jesus as Lord? Because there's no middle road. Either have or you have it. And the Lord offers this to you one more time. You've heard it. That's today. One more time. You've heard it. What have you done with it? Paul assumes it. He's talking to the Colossians here. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He means that's first. If you haven't done that, then you'll get to the rest of this later. But start with receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the first step. If you have, so walk in him. Think about that. Walk in him. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? We're dealing with this in Christ thing all the time throughout this. And even if you paid some attention as we read through this text, it's all over the place. In Christ, in him, with him. How do you walk in someone else? I don't walk in you. You don't walk in me. That would be weird. So we're not talking about physically, right? I'm not somehow climbing inside of like a Jesus suit and then walking in him, right? What does it mean? Walk in him. This is the trouble with sometimes we read some of these phrases and we really go, mm, yes, mm, 
I have no idea what that means. And we have to be careful to not just gloss over those things. And say, well, okay, what does that mean? So walk in him. Well, the word for walk there, this is a big shock for you, is the same word (laughs) that's translated as walk elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, Galatians 5.16 talks about walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. This is a really helpful little exercise to help us understand how do we understand what it means to walk in Christ. And if I just go to my concordance and look up walk, I can find all kinds of interesting things, helpful things that help me understand what it means to walk in him. See, the Bible, uh, and particularly when Paul is writing here, he uses this word walk. We might say live, live in him, live according to Christ, live um, your life in such a way that it looks like Jesus. But Paul says walk because he wants to give a picture. Immediately when you think about walk, you're thinking about action, you're thinking about doing, it's, it's active, it's something that I am participating in. I'm not just passively waiting for the Lord to do something in me. No, I am taking part in it. I am joining along with what the Lord is doing. I am walking, I am, it's active. Walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Romans 6.4, walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Romans 8.4, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.7, walk by faith, not by sight. Ephesians 2.10, walk in good works that God has prepared beforehand. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. You can do this. I'm reading through these and you're perhaps feverishly trying to write them down. Just look in your concordance for walk and there you go. Walk in the light, 1 John 1.7. 1 John 2.6, walk in the same way as he walked. In 2 John 4 and 3 John 4, walk in truth. When we sort of mush all these together and understand that this helps us to understand what it means to walk in Christ. I'm walking in newness of life. I'm not walking according to the flesh. I'm walking by faith, not by sight. I'm walking in the good works that the God has prepared beforehand. I'm walking in a manner worthy of my calling. I'm walking in love. I'm walking as children of light. I'm walking in light. I'm walking in truth. And I'm walking in the same way as he walked. That's what that means. Walk in him. As you have received Jesus as Lord, therefore live in your Lord. Live in dependence on your Lord. Live like he is your Lord. Live that someone would look at you and say, I think you are a son or daughter of the Father through Christ. Live your life now so totally caught up in Jesus Christ as your Lord that it's clearly evident that that's who he is. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 7, all of these little phrases now uh, uh, go back to pointing to verse 6. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Rooted, built up, established. All of those things are passive. means they're not commands. They're not telling you, be rooted. Or be built up. Or establish yourself. He's saying that happened already. 
When you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you were rooted and built up in him. You were established in the faith. He says, just as you were taught. When the Colossian church heard the gospel for the first time and received Christ Jesus the Lord, they were rooted and built up in him. They were established in their faith. That's what they were taught. Any proper teaching of the gospel should bring about that understanding. This isn't a command, root yourself, or build yourself up, or establish yourself. No, Jesus does all of that for you when you receive him as Lord. Just as you were taught. They were taught by Epaphras. And if we go back to chapter 1, we see when Epaphras went and taught them. Chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. If you have someone like Epaphras or have had someone like Epaphras in your life, thank God for the Epaphras that the Lord has sent to you that faithfully taught you the gospel. Paul says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. Once you've heard the gospel, it cannot help but bear fruit and increase. You can fight against it. You can get back caught into sin. You can let sin reign. You can break your communion and fellowship with the Lord for a time. Feel in a fog. Feel all messed up because of sin. But the gospel will bear fruit if it has taken root. And Paul says, back in our text, that's what you were taught. Teaching, teaching is not a one-time thing, is it? It's not just that you've, you've heard it once, you're taught. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? It's an ongoing process. And I... Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so this and this and this, right? You need to kind of plug some of the points together. You need to hear it again and again and be reminded and then fill in the gaps that you, oh, I, okay, yep, that, that's here, right? Paul says, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving is the only thing that you're continuing to do. You're already rooted, you're already built up, you're already established if you've received Christ Jesus the Lord and you need to be walking in him. But what you need to be doing now is abounding in thanksgiving. Not just a thanksgiving. <laughs> abounding in thanksgiving. And if we look in, in the context of what Paul's saying, and he's going to jump to it here in the next verse, but Paul is making... A strong point that Christ is enough. Amidst everything else that you would hear, 
Paul's saying, because there's an issue in the Colossian church. People have crept in, just like in the Galatian church, people have crept in and tried to steer people away from the truth. You have people in your life, I'm sure of it, who would just want you to just, eh, just go this way a little bit. That's not really, I mean, don't, don't think that way. Like, do just little corrections, right? Or as we watch the, the TV and Netflix and everything else, there are all kinds of messages that are coming at us, telling us that, well, that's not really right. I know you're a nice religious Christian, and that's wonderful. But, you know, you should really change that. Don't, don't, don't think that way. We have constant messages and thoughts and ideas and philosophies that are coming at us, telling us essentially that either the Christian life is outdated, it's not enough, you need a little bit more than just faith in Jesus. You need a little bit more than, you need to add some of these other things on. And that's exactly what's happening in the Colossian church. So Paul wants to root them firmly in what they've heard in the gospel. And we must work diligently to keep ourselves pointed back to the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again. We should never get tired of talking about the gospel because it is it. There's nothing else. There's not like I'm, I'm, I've got the gospel, now I can move on. There's no moving on from being in Christ, from being crucified in Christ and raised with him through faith. That's the Christian life. That's it. But there's all kinds of depths that you can explore in that. Oh, we can't wear it out. Paul says, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Saying, don't allow yourself to get sidetracked by other ways of thinking that will pull you away from Christ. It's a song, newer song out, talks about there's nothing worth keeping that's keeping you from Christ. Paul says, see to it. We like to think about security. Security is important. Our personal security, our home security. Security of our schools. Good things. Think of this as mental security. Securing your thinking. Wrapping your mind around what's true and keeping it there. Because what's always the, the rival for us in our thinking is someone or something wants to tell us that that's not true, this is what's true. And there is a truth that's just plain. And the Lord tells it to us. What's true? What's true? What's true about creation? What's true about my existence? What's true about who I am? What's true about myself in relation to this God who has created all these things? What's true about uh, how I might be made right with him? What's true about how I'm now to live? What's true See to it that no one takes you captive. That's a powerful word picture. He's not literally talking about someone carting you away, but someone carting your brain away. (laughs) 
Do you know the Bible never tells us to be open-minded? Doesn't. If you can find it, I'll give you a dollar. But you won't, so I will keep my dollar. Doesn't tell us to be open-minded. That doesn't mean (laughs) that we shouldn't be ready to hear from the Lord and be corrected by His truth. Because we can be kind of a blockhead, to use Charlie Brown's term, in relation to everything, including the Lord. Well, this is what's true, and that's it. And then God's saying, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, by the way, that's, that, that's wrong. We need to be willing to hear from the Lord and be corrected by him. But we need to secure our thinking. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The particular kind of philosophy Paul is talking about here is a certain kind that's dealing in the Colossian church and amongst them. They're coming in and it's influenced by all kinds of Greek background stuff, mysticism, weird stuff that's being mushed in together with Christian faith and saying you need, you need some, some, some Jewish law keeping. Yes, you need to have faith in Christ, but also you need to think about some of these sort of Greek mystical philosophy. Uh, uh, philosophical ideas, bring them all together, and that's what you should be, be as a Christian. And Paul's saying, no, that's not right. Don't be taken captive by this philosophy and empty deceit. There's nothing in it. When you, when you open the box that they're trying to sell you, that, well, there's nothing here. There's nothing to this. What does this even mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn over there with me, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word philosophy literally means loving wisdom. Loving wisdom. You know the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love? There's that philo, beginning of philosophy. Sophie, Sophia, wisdom, loving wisdom. We should love wisdom, but a certain kind of wisdom. Paul deals with that here, 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe." For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's something about the gospel that just, yeah, people aren't are going to say it's crazy, it doesn't make sense. We believe in a man who claimed to be God and was killed and was raised again and we believe that he's in heaven right now and he's going to come back one day on a white horse and judge everyone. Yes, we believe that. That sounds crazy to the world. But that's think about it. That's what's true. God defines what's wise, what's true. 
And we need to not be so careless, perhaps, about our thinking that we are pulled aside. Paul does not condemn philosophy as such. When he's in Athens in Acts 17, he quotes one of their philosophers and talks about it as though it's true. In him we live and move and have our being. He's talking about God. But Paul condemns the type of philosophy that seduces believers from the simplicity of their faith in Christ. Anything that tells you that Christ is not enough is from hell and is a lie. Back in our text in Colossians 2, he says this philosophy and empty deceit is according to human tradition. And according to the elemental spirits of the world. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, uh, Paul says that we were enslaved to these same elementary principles before we knew Christ. These elementary principles, these uh, elementary spirits, elemental spirits, however, however your particular translation translates it, is just this basic idea of, of the world. It's almost a pagan kind of idea of just the way the world is. We need to live in certain ways in order to appease uh, the gods, things that aren't true. He's saying this philosophy, this empty deceit is according to human tradition, according to these elemental spirits of the world. And before we knew Christ, Paul says in Galatians 4.3, we were enslaved to these things. This is what we thought. Our minds were enslaved to them. This is what we thought was true, but it's of course not. But in verse 9 of Galatians 4, Paul says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how could you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. It sounds an awful lot like Paul saying in Romans 6, you've, been, you've died to sin, why would you want to go back to it? He's saying the same thing about these elementary, these ways of thinking, these natural ideas about the earth and all kinds of naturey weird stuff. Why, you've been set free from that. You're not enslaved to that anymore because that's not true. Christ shows you what is true and shows you what is foundational and shows you what your life should be made up of. That's why he says in our text here, and not according to Christ. Philosophy, ways of thinking that aren't according to Christ, will take you captive. He says, see to it that that doesn't happen. Verse 9. For in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is where we begin to see all kinds of in hymns and with hymns throughout these few verses. In him, in Christ, dwells the whole fullness of deity and dwells bodily. Jehovah's Witnesses twist this and mistranslate this verse. This is how they, they write it. Because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily. You see, in their uh, heretical teaching, uh, Christ cannot be God. Therefore, you have, to, you have to come up to verses like this and, and sort of do some translation gymnastics around it to just not say what it says. And so they say divine quality. But no, the word is deity, God. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God along with the Father and the Spirit, eternally existing for all time. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God. Jesus says in John fourteen nine, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 
verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is truly God. He is very God of very God for all eternity. And that's who Paul is pointing to. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. And you have, verse 10, been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority. Everything you need, you have in Christ. We sung that this morning. Christ is enough. That's what he's saying. You've been filled in him. You have everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. You lack nothing. If you lose everything, as Joel said, you're not lacking. If you have Christ. Do you believe that? It's a scary thought. It's a, it's a, it's a big statement to make. That you actually believe that. That Christ is so much enough that if I lose everything in this life, I don't lack anything. But that's true. Not because I say so, but because that's what the Lord tells us. And we can clamor for all kinds of things that we want, want to have, uh, positions that we want, uh, uh, notoriety, ideas about who we are, um, uh, good things, wonderful things, family, uh, friends, Uh, possessions, yada, 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 all these other things that we desire. But if we lose all of that and still have Christ, we have everything. And Christ, we have that because Christ has you. Do you know that this morning? If you're in Christ, he has you. You've been filled in him. The Son of God, you've been filled in him. David writes, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. I have everything. Beginning of John's gospel, he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John 1, 16 you have Christ, you have everything. He is the head of all rule and authority. While other rule and authorities might vie for your attention, telling you that power and strength and fulfillment come from them, these are, these are spiritual things, these are worldly things, these are everything outside of Christ. Rule and authorities, ideas of power, ideas of strength. While all of these things might tell you that they're important and they're the most important thing, Christ stands above it all as the head of all those things. Despite what they say, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And as the word tells us elsewhere, we don't see that right now, but we will. Right? It will be plain. It will be clear. Who he is as King of kings and Lord of lords will be completely unmistakable. Won't be a secret anymore. We know it's not a secret. We know it's true now. 
Even as we look at the world, as we read the news and we see all of the things that are happening, we wonder sometimes, well, why, why, why? We know that God is, God is not wondering why, how, what's going on. He's the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ, he's saying, you were set apart through putting to death the old self, the circumcision of Christ. What's he talking about? We know that circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If you were under the covenant of Abraham, you received as a male circumcision. And a debated topic among many in the early church as to whether it was still necessary uh, was, do I need to be circumcised as a Christian? But the Bible is abundantly clear in Romans and Galatians, as well as in the book of Acts, that circumcision is not required for Christians. It's the same thing as following all kinds of uh, Jewish practices and so on that Paul is talking about in Galatians 2, following the law. If you go back to the law, you have to live to the whole law. And by the way, once you get started, you've already lost, because if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken it all, and there is no starting over. Circumcision isn't required. But the sign of circumcision, that cutting off of uh, the, the old, is what Paul is capturing here for us, understanding the circumcision of Christ. He's not literally talking about Christ having been circumcised. He's talking about something else. As I said, the Colossian church was being tempted by some to rely on Old Testament practices, adding that into their faith in Christ as the standard for Christian living. The message was, yes, believe in Jesus, but continue to follow these practices. Also, you need to follow some of these philosophical ideas. And Paul uses this interesting phrase, the circumcision of Christ. He's not talking about actual circumcision here. He's talking about something that comes from being in Christ. How do I know that? Verse 12. By the circumcision of Christ, the end of verse 11. Having been buried with him, verse 12, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He has put together circumcision and baptism in such a way that he's going back to the way that he talked about baptism in Romans 6. Something that has to do with being in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul in Romans 2.29, he talks about circumcision as a matter of the heart. Putting off of the body of the flesh could not happen by anything that we do. We can't put to death our old self. We talked about that last week. I can't just stand and somehow put him to death and then move on. No, Christ had to do that. And we'd already talked about how we needed to participate in the death of Christ and in his resurrection in order for that to be done. And what Paul is saying here, the circumcision of Christ and how he describes it and defines it, baptism is a kind of spiritual circumcision, he says. That's what he's using this as a picture of. All of this is spiritual. It can be hard. It seems like abstract ideas. I understand it can be hard to wrap our minds around a bit. But Paul is talking about this participation with Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The entry point of all this is faith in Christ. You 
were also circumcised, verse 11, with the circumcision made without hands. That means it's not actual circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, he says, and he, buried, he points it to baptism, points it to faith. It's all this package deal of what it means to be in Christ through faith and trust in him. Which means that, no, Colossians, you don't need to go back to these other practices. The entry point is faith. Faith in Christ. Faith alone. In Christ alone. But look at verse 12. In which you were also raised with him through faith. We talked about this last week a bit. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. As for Jesus, not for us. But what what does Paul say? You were raised with him. He can't mean all the fullness of what the resurrection will be for us. New bodies, all that. (laughs) We could all say amen to that, right? Haven't gotten those yet. But there's something that has begun in us through faith in Christ. It started just like the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but it's not fully here. Christ brought it. When the king comes, so does the kingdom. And in us, we're, we were raised. Something has begun in us. We're these new creations. We're no longer who we once were. But we're not yet who we're going to be. But something has begun in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Something powerful there about Paul saying, You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. That process, that work has begun in you. If you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, you were raised with him. He goes on, verse 13. You, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven forgiven us all our trespasses. Before all of this happened to you, you were dead in sin and living by your flesh. But God made you alive when, Christ, uh, when uh, he brought Christ back to life. And in the process, he forgave your sin. God made you alive together with him. God made you alive together with him. Your life you now live, when Paul says to live as Christ, the life that you now live as Christians, God made that possible. He made you alive together with him. And in the process, forgave you all your trespasses. He didn't miss any. There's none hidden back in the corner under the rug. There's, there's nothing that, well, you didn't catch that. All your trespasses, Amen. they're gone. You don't suffer the guilt of them before the Lord anymore. They're taken care of, as Joel shared this morning. How did he do it? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Imagine if I had a receipt up here this morning. It would be a very long receipt. <laughs> that listed all of your sins and all of the debt that that incurred. How long would that receipt go out into the hallway and out into the street and into Walnut Creek? <laughs> Think about that. Think about that picture. The record of debt. Here's... Here's nailed up on the wall. There's Nick's record of debt. Put yours next to mine. 
If you could visualize that. Oh, if we could see that. How much debt our lives of sin have incurred. And what Christ does is he just cancels it. It's gone. He canceled the record of debt. You don't know anything anymore. You no longer have that debt. That's why we should be abounding in thanksgiving. Ten years ago, we bought our house. And uh, <laughs> uh, got the call about how much the closing cost was going to be. And sweet mercy, that was a lot more than uh, <laughs> money than I had at the time. But the, 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 the chain of events had begun. And, well, I guess you can't play closing costs with a few hundred dollars in the bank account. So I freaked out and, you know, uh, praying and what are we going to do? And through uh, close family member conversation, just said, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of it. And I can remember getting off the phone, and it's a silly thing, buying the house, but I can remember getting off the phone and just weeping because I thought, Lord, this was dumb. Why did we do this? What am I doing? And that was a decent amount of money that we needed to pay that I didn't have. Oh, but what a debt that we have incurred because of our sin. So far beyond that, you don't have the money. You don't have, you don't have it in you to pay that. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you know. I don't care what you're able to do. You cannot pay that. But Christ has. He nailed it to the cross. He set it aside. It's gone. It's gone. As a loving father, he set it aside. Think about this. Who's the he here? He, he's all over the place. We don't know who the he is until we look at the last verse. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross or in it. It's the father. God so loved the world. Do you know that the father loves? We we sang about that this morning. God, the father loves you. Jesus isn't the guy who's standing between you and the father saying, hey, I know he's really bad, but can you just, just trust me, I'll, I'll deal with him. It's okay, you know. God the Father isn't this grumpy God who's just sitting up there in heaven. And Jesus, are you going to take care of these guys because they're driving me crazy? God the Father loves you. Do you know that? He loves you so much. So much. And whatever your conception of a father is, forget it and let him redefine it. Because he is perfect. What he's saying about it, isn't he? The Father. The Father set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The Father disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, on the cross, in the cross. What does this say about God? That the cross is how he shows his power and glory. 
The way that he disarms rulers and authorities isn't by having some big military advance, some big war. (laughs) The way that the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God that gives you the breath that you're breathing right now, the way that he displays his power and glory is in the cross. What does that say about him? That is power that you have no conception of. I am so powerful that I can humble myself down and I can conquer through seemingly defeat. That's how much power our God has.